Good morning. As TJ mentioned, our scripture reading today is taken from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning to all of you, and it's so good to see you uh, this morning. We get to talk about hope today, and I'm so uh, excited to talk about this topic. This, this passage that Allison just read is a defining biblical text on the topic of hope. It was Henry David Thoreau, who was a 19th century American writer and poet who is the author of some books that might be familiar to some of you, the author of Walden and the author of Civil Disobedience, wrote in the 1800s. But it was Henry David Thoreau who said these words. He said, most men lead lives of quiet desperation. Most people lead lives of quiet desperation. You know, there are times in our lives where we understand what Henry David Thoreau has talked about. There have been times throughout history, perhaps seasons in your life. Uh, a lot of times, art imitates life and imitates what Thoreau called quiet desperation. Uh, when Molly and I watch Netflix, we usually, we enjoy like really light stuff, um, like Crash Landing on You, which is a Korean one, or Ted Lasso, uh, which is just hilarious. Uh, we like stuff like that. Most of all, I prefer edgy, Northern European, whodunit, murder types of things. Um, but lately, Molly and I have been watching uh, a very profound series on Netflix called Made. It's called Made. I wanna let you know what it's about. It's relatively recent. And uh, it's not the type of thing that I would normally watch. In fact, uh, every night when Molly and I kind of, or whenever we watch stuff, and I'll just kind of kiss her when we're done, she'll say, you know, I'm really surprised that you're watching this with me, this show called Made. But I want to let you know what Made is about, because art imitates life, and it so illustrates this idea of quiet desperation. In the Netflix series Made, single mother Alex turns to house cleaning to make ends meet as she escapes an abusive relationship 
and overcomes homelessness to create a better life for her daughter. That's what the story is about. So profound, it's so well acted, the dialogue's great, the storytelling is great. Uh, it has really kept us riveted. One of the things that happens in the first episode, you catch this experience and, and you begin to feel that quiet desperation where she's disappointed, of course, first of all, by her husband who has not physically abused her, but you see graphically the emotional abuse that she has been going through. Disappointed by a social worker who treats her with a certain type of disdain that feels very hopeless to Alex. Disappointed by the owner of a maid service where she's trying to get a job and how she's treated there and, and uh, the, the lack of dignity that she feels. Disappointed by her crazy mom uh, who she can't really trust in anymore, her mom and her dad. Um, Disappointed by the courts, her uh, husband who, from whom she had fled gets a lawyer and takes her to court and it's this custody battle, but she's not prepared for that. She doesn't understand the law. And then time after time after time, you see this quiet desperation in the eyes and in the face of a 25-year-old woman. Watching this show was especially excruciating for me. In fact, we're still in it. We're not done with it. But it's been ex especially excruciating for me as a pastor. The first time we watched it, I said to Molly, I said, now, this is really hard for me to watch as a pastor. And the reason for that is that over the years, as we have gotten to know and gotten involved in the lives of, of many people, we know people that have experienced quiet desperation in their lives. We know people that have struggled with a loss of hope. And we feel that as part of their lives. Our elders go through the same thing. Some of you in the people helping profession or just caring for people, you know what that feels like. And so it's not exactly entertainment to watch a Netflix show such as the one that I just described. But art imitates life, doesn't it? Where does the despair come from? What's the root of despair? On the stage behind me, you see four words, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. I want you to pay attention to those signs throughout this, this sermon because we're gonna, there's gonna be some hooks for you there. But where does, what, is the, what is the root? What underlies the fact that people lead lives of quiet desperation? Well, on uh, my right and your left, you see the fall. In, in creation, Everything was how things were designed to be by God. But in the fall, what happened in the fall is that mankind rebelled against God and fell into sin, and there were cascading results from the fall that resulted in things like what we watch in the movie Made. So much of art that imitates life illustrates the brokenness and the sin that's in the world. That sin is not just the brokenness in the world that hurts us, but it's also when we contribute to it by our own rebellion against God. In fact, the Bible says, Jesus said, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And so living in a fallen world, all of us that are really in touch with the reality of the world around us or the reality of our hearts can appreciate despair because we understand the grip and the slavery that sin has on our lives 
because of the fall. I share all that with you because I want to let you know what is the medicine for despair. You see, last week we talked about pressing on to maturity, but I know that that journey is not an easy journey for all of you. Whatever age and stage of life that you're in, it's not an easy journey. So to be ready for that journey, you need to carry hope with you. You need to carry Christian hope with you. So what I want to say to you this morning is that the medicine for despair is Christian hope. Let me say that one more time. The medicine for despair is Christian hope. When we talk about hope, a lot of us might uh, have a more sort of a, an unbiblical view of hope because of the way we use hope in our language. We say, well, do you think the Boston Red Sox will make it to the World Series? Well, if you're a Red Sox fan, you say, I hope so. If you're a Dodgers fan, you say, I hope so. If you want um, uh, Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Bucks to, to go to the Super Bowl, you say, I hope so. If you want your favorite college team to go all the way to the college football championship, you say, I hope so, because you're not sure. So hope in our language feels a little bit uncertain, doesn't it? But the Bible, when the Bible talks about hope, it's not talking about a hope-so hope, it's talking about a no-so hope. And I want to give you a definition from Rico Tice, and I want you to listen to these words from Rico Tice when he describes the meaning of hope, because it's good to know what hope really is in the Bible and what Christian hope is. Rico Tice says, hope is a joyful expectation of the future. Hope is a joyful expectation of the future based on true events in the past which changes everything about my present. Say that one more time. Hope is a joyful expectation of the future based on true events in the past which changes everything about my present. One of the reasons I think this is so timely for all of us today is that I know as a pastor that every day in your life there are losses that you feel, both major and minor losses. There are disappointments that you face in your life. There are delayed dreams. And these losses, these disappointments, these delayed dreams chisel away at your hope. They chisel away at it. It's because you live in a fallen world. What this passage teaches, though, is that we have, all of us here, if you've believed in Christ, you still live in a fallen world, but you have fled that fallen world, and you have fled to the one who came to redeem us. You have fled to Christ, who has offered us hope, and who has offered us redemption. We have fled from the slavery that is over here to the freedom that is over here. We have fled from the guilt and shame that is here to the grace of the gospel and forgiveness of sins over here. We have fled to a greater hope. So really it's important that you and I know that Christian hope is the medicine for despair. I hope that the rest of your life, if you're one of these college and 20-somethings in the room, I hope you'll remember that the rest of your life. If you're an older person in your life, I hope you'll always remember 
that the medicine for despair with your medical illnesses and your aging and your aching that you feel and the disappointments in your life that you've had over a whole lifetime in a broken and fallen world, that the medicine for despair is Christian hope. This, this passage is a defining passage about hope, and I think it's really good for us to know this passage. It's good for us to remember it, to study it, and to understand it. So to make it accessible, to, make, to give you some handles in this passage, what I'd like to do in my outline is give you three statements that we learn from this passage about hope. They will be three hope is statements. And so I wanna give you those. Here's number one. Here's number one that we learn about hope from this passage. Hope is a promise that helps you persevere. Hope is a promise that helps you persevere through the hard times in life. Look at verse 13, go back into the text. As we said last week, we're gonna keep our finger on the passage, and I want you to notice what this passage says about hope, and starting at verse 13. It says, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by someone, something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired, and by the way, notice God's desire. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, who's that talking about? That's you and me. To show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge from this fallen world might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. You see the emphasis on promise in this passage? Now permit me to unpack it just a little bit. When it mentions the name Abraham, I realize that a lot of you who are really familiar with the Old Testament, you're familiar with the story of Abraham and perhaps that's meaningful to you. Others of us though, perhaps many of us here, when we mention the name Abraham, it might not at first resonate with us and the way it's intended to in this passage. But what the writer to Hebrews wants us to see is he wants us to take a look at Abraham's story. And so what I'd like to do is just take a minute with you to look at Abraham's story and how it illustrates this point that hope is a promise that helps you persevere. You see, in the same way that George Washington was the father of our country, America, Abraham, in the Bible was the father of all who believe. So the Bible teaches that if you believe in Christ, you yourself are a descendant of Abraham. You've been grafted in, you're a descendant. And not only that, not only are you an heir of all the promises made to Abraham, but it's almost like you, you're included in his will. There is an inheritance, there's a very rich inheritance that has been given to you because of the life of Abraham. So I wanna talk about what this passage is saying about Abraham, because he's very important to you whether you, really, whether you understand that or not. 
The way I wanna do it to make it memorable is I wanna let you know about four tests to Abraham that he went through in his life because they'll illustrate how the promise gave him perseverance through the hard time. The first test is found in Genesis chapter 12, which is where Abraham first appears, and it was the test of obedience. Abraham was an idolater living in uh, a place called Ur, and the word of the Lord came to him, and God gave him his first promise. The promise is, I will make of you a great nation. I will make you a blessing to all the nations of the earth. So God, and by the way, Abraham was 75 years old when he got this first test. And Hebrews 11.8 says that, when, that Abraham obeyed God and he left his home and left his family and he followed God. So that's number one. That was the first test and he passed that test. He was 75 years old, but the promise was that there'd be a nation that would come from him. He didn't see that nation, but he obeyed based upon that promise. But then there was a second test for Abraham, and this was, when, this was 10 years later when he was 85 years old. The second test came. We read, we read about it in Genesis 15. What happened there is that, it's, I'm gonna call this the test of despair, the test of despair. Because Abraham was now 85 years old and he, he and his wife Sarah still did not have a baby. She was barren, they could not bear a child. And Abraham is wanting to give up and he's wanting to quit. But God wants him to persevere. But Abraham says, look, let's just, let's just like, why don't you have my heir come from this person over here and let's just do it in my own power. And God did this for Abraham. God took him outside under the stars. It's almost like William Shatner blasting into space and finally seeing what it really looks like out there. But here was Abraham and God took him out and, and he, just like all those lights up there, and God says, I want you to see if you can count those stars. And God gave Abraham a second promise saying, see those stars? So shall your descendants be. And you know, Abraham didn't have any proof that he and Sarah would have a baby, but God gave him a promise about those stars. And it says in Genesis 15 that Abraham at that moment believed God and God credited it to him as righteous, righteousness. What's really cool about that is that all of you in this room, when you became a Christian, you did the same thing Abraham did. You believed the promise that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died for your sins. And when you believe that promise, God declared you righteous and forgiven. And so in Genesis 15, at the age of 85, Abraham becomes an illustration for what it means to begin the Christian life. Then there was a third test. This time Abraham was around 100 years old. He and Sarah still did not, not, did not have children. I'm gonna call it the test of barrenness, not just the test of desperation, but the test of impossible barrenness. But it says in Romans 4, in hope against hope, Abraham continued to believe God. Now his belief was imperfect, he made him a lot, lot of mistakes in his life, but he persevered through all that. And did you know that then God miraculously blessed Sarah with a child by the name of Isaac. And this was the beginning of the fulfillment of 
God's promise to Abraham. But then there was a fourth test. There was a fourth test. In Genesis chapter 22, God said, Abraham, there's something else I want you to do, and I'm going to see if you trust me. I want you to take your son, your only son, up to the top of Mount Moriah and to sacrifice him to me, to give up, to give up the thing that you wanted most, the thing that you cherished most, your, the fulfillment of all your dreams. I want you to give it to me. And it was on that occasion, on Genesis 22, that Abraham, by faith, said, you know what? I know God's not, God's not gonna take this child from me. God's gonna provide. And sure enough, at the last minute, God provided a lamb as a substitute. And it was at that moment that God swore to Abraham, and this is what you see in Hebrews chapter six. It says in verse 14, it says that, or verse 13, God swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. What it says there is that God not only gave him a promise, but then God swore by himself. He couldn't swear by anyone greater, so he swore by himself so that by two unchangeable things in which it was impossible God, for God to lie, God would guarantee his promise for Abraham. Now you know what's amazing about that, that whole thing is that even when Abraham had Isaac and God rescued Isaac, God had still not made of him uh, all these descendants, made a full nation out of him. But if you go back to those stars in Genesis chapter 15, you know what the Bible teaches? Is that the reason we know that God was faithful to his promises to Abraham is because you and I are here. Because you and I are the stars of Genesis 15. When God took Abraham out and said, count the stars, the Bible teaches in the book of Galatians that what God was doing was that in Christ, in Abraham's seed, the one who would come, that in Christ, everyone who would ever believe in Christ throughout all of history would be a descendant of Abraham and included in the will and heir of the promise. And isn't that what it says here? Look at verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's you and me, we're included in the will, and it's substantial the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. And so this message, this is, a, this is a message for the church that you and I are the fulfillment of Genesis 15, we are the stars of Genesis 15, and God has kept his promise. Now let's land the plane on this one because you're thinking, well, what promises has God given me and how does that help me with my despair in my life. Couple things. Look at those four words behind me, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. It says that we have fled for refuge. I love the song this morning, we're running to his arms. We have fled for refuge and now we have put our faith in Christ. We have put our hope in him. Here's what I wanna let you know because you're wondering, well Mike, what are the promises that I hold on to? Because hope, we're saying hope is a promise that helps you persevere, then what promise am I holding on to? I can see that Abraham had a promise, but what are my promises? Well, look at the third word over there, redemption. The Bible gives you promises right now because you actually, we all here, we live 
in the overlap of the ages where we're still under the curse of the fall, but now we have redemption. The fall was the despair and the way things are, but redemption is the way things can be in Christ. And so you have promises right now that you can hold on to. What are those promises in this season, this time of redemption? Well, first of all, you have the, the, the promise of forgiveness of sins. You have the promise of being adopted into the family of God, so you've got this loving community. You have the promise that God will answer prayer. You have the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit that he has given to you as a down payment of your ultimate restoration in Christ. And so as you are filled with the Holy Spirit, as you allow the Spirit of God to work in your life, he will produce in you the fruit of the Spirit. All of these are some of the promises. The promise of answered prayer is one of the most amazing things because when you're in times of despair, one of the best things you can do is you can pray and you can ask others to pray for you because that's when you connect to God's hope that fills in that despair gap in your life. So God gives us all these promises in this life right now that you can trust him. I'll give you another one, Philippians 4.19. God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's a promise right now that is if you and I are generous with what God gives to us, God will provide for our needs. He has an unlimited supply in heaven. We can trust in God to provide. So there's all these promises and it's those promises that we hold on to that enable us to persevere in life. And in that way, we are following the pattern of Abraham. But not only that, restoration. There is, a, there, is a, there is an amazing future that God has for us where it says in Revelation, in the time of restoration, that God will wipe away every tear from your life. He will take away all possible despair there will no longer be the effects of the fall. He will make you new. He will make a new heavens and a new earth. He will give you a resurrection body like the body of Jesus Christ. And no wonder that Romans 5 says we exult, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God because that is our ultimate hope. When God, uh, is, as, as someone has said, that God will make every sad thing come untrue, that is our ultimate hope. And so as you and I go through life, we follow the pattern of Abraham, and I believe that that's what this passage is talking about. That's the first thing we learn about hope. Hope is a promise that helps you persevere. Number two, let's go on to the second, second one about hope. The second thing we learn in this passage. The second is that hope is an anchor that helps you weather the storm. Hope is an anchor that helps you weather the storm. So look at what it says in verse 19. By the way, the front of your bulletin has an anchor on it, so we're kind of getting to like the main point of this whole series on Hebrews. But look at verse 19 as it talks about hope. It says, verse 19, we have this, that is we have this hope as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So what it does is it uses this uh, nautical metaphor of an anchor, an anchor in the storm. I really love this particular verse. I think this is one we should all carry with us through in life because we all, the, the, the people to whom the writer to the Hebrews wrote faced storms, they were going through persecution. Um, and you and I face storms in life all the time. When uh, my son Jonathan 
my son Jonathan was dating his wife, Daniela, who's from Germany. Some of their da time dating, they were actually in southern Spain at an event, and uh, as they were in southern Spain, they were out hiking, and they saw this huge anchor, and so they took this picture of this anchor, and they said to themselves, let's make this anchor the theme for our lives, based upon Hebrews chapter six, the verse that we just read. They said, let's make this anchor the theme for our lives. In 2008, I had the, pri the privilege of officiating their wedding. Uh, it was a German-American wedding. It happened here in Orlando back in 2008. And one of the songs that they sang in that wedding was a German song called Anker in der Zeit, which means an anchor in time. And so Jonathan and Daniela took that anchor theme and they made it the theme of their wedding and the theme of their lives. And so I chose, I actually preached on this verse in my son's wedding about an anchor in time. And I've watched uh, Jonathan and his wife, now they've been married 13 years, it's just hard to believe, but I've seen them go through all kinds of things in life but what they've done is they've had this anchor through all the disappointments and all the losses and all the hardships and all the fear, they held on to this anchor, this hope that we have, this nautical term, this hope. What's interesting about this verse, so look, again, look back again at this verse, because an anchor is something that when a ship is going through a storm, an anchor is at the bottom of the ocean, and the ship is being knocked around, but, the, but you, the ship is being held secure and steadfast. And that's what happens in ships in the ancient world and even boats and ships today. But it says something different here. It says it's a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So what it's saying here is that, is that Christ is, that Christ our hope, that our anchor is actually gone ahead of us into the time of uh, restoration, has gone up to heaven, has gone into this inner curtain. What it's talking about there is this, this picture of the tabernacle, which is the earthly tabernacle was a picture of the heaven, heavenly tabernacle. And it's saying that our access to this, this harbor of heaven, what it was like was a ship in the ancient world it was out there in rough seas, and so the anchor was in the, the, the placid, peaceful harbor, and because that anchor was in the harbor, the ships could withstand the storm. And so what this is saying is that we, our anchor, rather than be on the ocean floor, it is an anchor in heaven, and that is what we hold on to, and that is all the promises and all the hopes of restoration for our future we have an anchor that has gone beyond the veil, and that is a beautiful picture. You know, yesterday, did you hear the news? There were up to 17 missionaries in Haiti who were abducted by gang members, and it was this morning I read like one of the WhatsApp, a WhatsApp text from one of, the, one of the missionaries, and it was, just, it was just chilling to read that. They haven't been rescued. We don't know what's gonna happen to them. Uh, it, it's, it's such a picture of desperation, but that my guess 
is that these believers in Christ who were there to visit an orphanage and to care for people and doing good down there in Haiti, abducted by this gang, this gang and with all the fear in their heart, what is it that they hold on to? They hold on to that anchor. They hold on to the promise of God. And that is the same thing with you and me in times of desperation. So hope is not simply a promise that helps you persevere, but hope is an anchor that helps you weather the storm. You have an anchor in time. And so for all of you here today, as you think about what you're going through, as you think about the delay of the dreams in your life, as you think about your losses and disappointments and even the desperation that you might feel that Thoreau talked about, what do you hold on to? We hold on to this steady anchor. Third thing about hope that we see from this passage, and that is this. Hope is not only <clears throat> a promise that helps you persevere, it is not only an anchor that helps you weather the storm, but thirdly, hope is a savior who is waiting for you. And I want you to capture this. Hope is a savior who is waiting for you. So look at what it says in verse 20. We've talked about how that anchor has gone into this sort of the placid harbor, the peaceful harbor to hold us steady. But look at verse 20. Into the inner place behind the curtain where it says in verse 20 where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The word forerunner, I understand, from a commentator by the name of Richard Phillips talks about this is also a nautical term. <clears throat> In the ancient world, what would happen is a big ship would be there, but usually the harbor would be separated from the sea by a sandbar. And so that large ship would not dare go into the harbor when the tide was low. They would have to wait till the tide was up and then they could go. So if the ship arrived, even in stormy times, and they couldn't go into the harbor, there was a smaller vessel called a forerunner that would go into that peaceful harbor and that would pave the way and they would secure the anchor and they'd have a forerunner that would go in there for us. And so what it's saying for us is that Jesus has gone before us into that time of restoration. Jesus has gone before us into the peaceful harbor behind the veil, and he does that as our forerunner. You know, I was really amazed uh, when we read our verses of assurance this morning from John chapter 14, because I don't think that uh, Lydia knew that I was going to refer to this, but it is true that Jesus said in John 14 that I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, there you may be also. You guys, we have a savior who waits for us, who has gone into that peaceful harbor, and, <clears throat> and he is our forerunner. John 17, 24, Jesus prayed to his father. He said, Father, I pray, I pray for those who have believed in me that they would be with me and see my glory to be where I am. That is what Jesus wants for us. So this is personal. It's not just an impersonal anchor, but there is a forerunner. There is a savior that we have who is ready to welcome you home. And he longs for us. I think it's just a beautiful thing. You know, as a couple of applications as we wind down our sermon in the next couple of minutes. I know that while there are many of you in this room who feel what Thoreau talked about, that most men lead lives of quiet desperation. There might be others of you 
watching online or listening to this sermon. And as you think about the idea of hope, you're thinking, wow, that's a, that's a nice idea, but you know, I'm, I'm actually a successful person. I've got plenty of money. Things are working in my life. They've worked throughout my life. The world is my oyster. Uh, you might be a young person who feels like everything's working well for you academically or whatever. Um, but I want to let you know a couple things about that. One is there will be times when you will feel desperate in your life. You can't escape that because we're still in a fallen world. But the other thing is that if God, if you're in a season where you're not feeling that desperation, you're saying the world is my oyster, 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19 gives us a challenge. Listen to this challenge. It says, uh, Paul writing to Timothy says, say to those who are rich in this present world to not fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy, and instead, be rich in good works, be ready to share. In other words, if you're in a season of blessing, then you have a greater responsibility to be on the cutting edge of the kingdom of God and to be doing good and to be generous and to be ready to share and to not fix your hope on a world that is dying. I love what F.F. F. Bruce said about this. He said, we in this room, we are refugees from the sinking ship of this present world order so soon to disappear. Our hope is fixed in the eternal order where the promises of God are made good to his people. Our hope based upon his promises is our spiritual anchor.